Good morning. Uh, in a Barna survey conducted a few years ago, 86% uh, of the adults surveyed claimed that they completely satisfied the Eighth Commandment. Now, this doesn't come as a surprise to me because I have never heard of anyone confessing their sin of stealing. And if I were to ask you all this morning, do you steal? Some of you would be offended. All of you would say no. Because to be called a thief is perhaps one of the lowest insults we can receive. Stealing for most of us is a low-class crime, something that we consider beneath us. We think as people, as a nation, as modern America, we have progressed beyond stealing. We've moved past it. And if we did steal, it's something we did when we were young, it was something small, and something just for fun. Now, before you go on and dismiss this commandment, thinking, well, this one is not for me, I want to remind you once again this morning who it is that's giving this command. God is giving to us this command. God is speaking it to us. You know, you have to think, would God give us something that's irrelevant? Would God give us a command that has really nothing to do with us? If God is our Father and He knows us well, He knows what we need to hear, would God give us a command that has absolutely nothing to do with us? And so, as His children, we can do two, two things this morning. We can either pay attention to what God is saying, we can lend our ear, we can give our ear and listen to what God is saying, or like children, we can play stupid and pretend that this has nothing to do with us. I mean, parents, you know what this is like, right, with your kids. Kids are really good at playing, but kids are also really good at playing stupid. They pretend, well, no, it's not me, this has nothing to do with me. And uh, I think God, he knows us well. So instead of us saying this morning, well, this one really doesn't have anything to do with me. I never steal. I want to encourage you and challenge you to give your ear to what God is saying. Right? God gave us the Ten Commandments. He gave us these ten words. He is not going to waste one of them on something that has absolutely nothing to do with us. And so, this morning, I want to explore what the Bible has to say about stealing. So, we'll do that by looking at two things. Number one, two questions. Number one, what are some of the ways in which we steal? And second, how does the gospel remedy our impulse for stealing? So first, what are some of the ways in which we steal? When it comes to stealing, we have a tendency of limiting its meaning we restrict the things that it covers, like a good old insurance policy, right? We limit it so, so much down to this one little line. For most of us, stealing is just taking something that doesn't belong to you. Now, whenever I think of stealing, I think about this little old lady that I used to know in high school. In high school, I worked as a cashier at a grocery store in Brooklyn. 
Uh, the store was located on a busy intersection right next to an off-track betting place, which is a place where people go to bet horses. It was right next to that store, and it was about a block away from Brooklyn College. And so the customers were uh, eclectic, to say the least, a variety of people coming in. At the store, there was, on average, about 20 people who would come in with the intent of stealing every day. And it was our jobs as employees and as cashiers to look out for those people. There was one lady in particular. She was a short lady, always dressed in black, always had a winter coat on. She had a French accent. And she would frequent the store and would always try to steal this gourmet ham called Spam. <laughs> I don't know if you've had it, but it's delicious and it's pricey. But she would always come hang around the spam section with a black shopping bag. We called her the spam thief. <laughs> you know, stealing is taking something that doesn't belong to you. Yes, just like this little old lady. But stealing is much more than that. Stealing encompasses a variety of things. Not only is stealing taking something that doesn't belong to you, but stealing, according to Leviticus 19, is extracting more than you should. For instance, Leviticus 19.35 says this, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or width or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. These are all measurements. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. According to the Old Testament here in Leviticus 19, stealing includes extracting, taking more payment than is required by using dishonest measures. There's this uh, well-known photo um, that was in the Saturday Evening Post back in the 1930s. There is a lady trying to uh, purchase something from the butcher. And there the butcher, as he lays that meat on the scale, he has his finger on it to push it down just a little bit more, to get just a little more. This is stealing. Now, maybe scales is something that we don't use at work, but something analogous would be the misrepresentation of numbers whether that's through asset misappropriation, whether it's disguising loans as sales, reporting fake earnings, inflating assets, and any other accounting schemes to deceive the public or the stockholders. This is a form of stealing. It's theft. You know, I talked about, you know, when it comes to stealing, I remember this little old lady who would come into the Brooklyn, into the store that I worked at, but, you know, as I was thinking about this, another lady came to mind, Elizabeth Holmes, former CEO of Theranos. She stole billions and billions of dollars, perpetuating a lie. So, stealing is taking something that's not yours. Stealing is extracting more than you should. Also, according to Exodus 22, stealing is taking advantage of the poor and the helpless. 
20, Exodus 22 says this, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. According to this, in Exodus 22, you are not supposed to charge interest on those who are poor. This is a form of stealing. Those who are helpless, those who are weak, those who are vulnerable and in need, we are not to extract interest from lending. Now, it seems that today we've done the very opposite. A lot of the U.S. economy is built upon preying upon the poor. We've done the very opposite because the poorer you are, the likely chance you'll have a lower credit score. And the lower credit score you have, the higher interest you'll pay. The poorer you are, the more banks and collection agencies will come after you knowing that you can't afford an attorney. The poorer you are, the more banks will try to convince you to refinance, open up new products, open up new lines of credit. In fact, there's even a term for this called predatory lending. Taking advantage of those who are poor and in need. Now today, I don't think the Eighth Commandment for forbids us from charging interest, but it does warn us against charging excessive interest from taking advantage of those who are weak, who are not in positions of power. So, stealing is taking something that's not yours. Stealing is extracting more than you should. Stealing is taking advantage of the poor and helpless. And stealing is also withholding something from someone. Uh, James 5.4 says this, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James 5.4 speaks of employers who deliberately hold back the wages of their employees. Scripture considers this a form of stealing. Stealing includes not paying fair wages to your employees. So, not only is stealing taking something that's not yours, Stealing is also withholding something that doesn't belong to you. Now, this can work the other way around too, because not only can employers steal from their employees, but employees can steal from their employers. Titus 2, 9 and 10 says this, bond servants, which in today's day, is most likely probably the best um, parallel is uh, employees. Bond servants were indentured servants, people who voluntarily gave themselves to service, to pay back a debt or to do something. But anyway, uh, employees, this is what Paul writes. Employees are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so if James 5 addresses employers from withholding and stealing, Titus 2 addresses employees, addresses employees 
calling them not to steal from their masters, their employers. So this addresses us, not stealing company merchandise, not stealing company time. You know, according to research, the number one cause of merchandise loss at retail stores is not shoplifters, but it's employees. According to the consultant group 415, they said that just in retail alone, close to $20 billion in merchandise is pilfered, is stolen by employees each year. You know, I told you that um, at the store that I worked, there were about 20 people on average who came in daily to, to steal from the store. Well, I can attest the employees stole even more. The owner of the store, what he would do is, to catch employees, he would have his friend come to the store with a large bill, a large bill that was marked, a $100 bill that had some sort of marking. And he would have his friend pay for an item with that large bill. And at the end of the day, when the owner closed the register, he would look for that marked bill. And when that marked bill went missing, he would fire the employee on the spot. It was, it was a well, well-known practice. You see, scriptures, when it speaks of stealing, it speaks not only of taking something that's not yours, extracting more than you should, uh, taking advantage of the poor, withholding something that's not yours, but stealing also includes not giving what you were compensated for. Stealing company time, stealing company merchandise. I like the way that Martin Luther sums up stealing. He says this, stealing is taking advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in a loss to him. So here are some modern examples of stealing. For those of you uh, who think, well, you know, I, I don't steal, let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever lied on your taxes? Thief. Have you ever stole company time? You're a thief. Have you ever taken advantage of the poor and those in desperate situations? A thief. Have you ever lied on expense reports? A thief. Have you ever inflated numbers? Thief. Have you ever withheld wages or refused to pay for goods and services? You are a thief. Have you ever filed a fraudulent insurance claim? Thief. Squandered company time. A thief. In addition to all this, there is one more form of stealing that's mentioned in the Bible, and that's stealing from God. In Malachi 3, uh, this really interesting scene happens. God comes to the people, he comes to man, and he says this, do you think it's possible for man to rob God? And God says, you know, you guys are robbing me. And the people here, they, they pretend to, uh, you know, be ignorant. They, they play dumb. They say, what do you mean we've robbed you, God? How can we rob you? And God says this in Malachi 3. He says this, you've robbed me in your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. You know, in the Old Testament, tithes and contributions were two of the many external forms of covenant 
between God and His people. Just like circumcision, just like the Passover feast, just like annual gatherings, just like Ebenezer, that rock that symbolized God's goodness and His protection, tithes and contributions were symbols. They were visible and tangible signifiers of God's promise. And this is what the promise was. God says this, I will provide for you in every single way. I will give you everything that you need. But... But the tithe, not just 10%, but God says the first 10%, that belongs to me. Now, if you think about this, this is a pretty good deal, right? God doesn't say, hey, listen, I'll get 90, you get 10, okay? He doesn't say, let's split this 50-50. He says this, I will give you everything. You keep everything that I give you. But the first 10, that belongs to me. This was this, the outward signifier that God was going to be good on his promise. It was God's way of keeping his people honest. It was God's way of reminding his people that the provisions came from his hands. It was through the tithes and contributions that God was going to provide for the poor and keep the temple worship going. Now, what happened was, during this time, people started to take this very lightly. They would forget or deliberately miscalculate. They would withhold. For instance, back then, tithe was in the form of grain or an animal from the herd or the flock. And there were these cases where among the herd, among the animals, an ox or a sheep was diseased. Right? That can happen. They were spotted, filled with blemish. They were unuseful. And what would happen was the, the owner would look upon his, his flock, his, his herd, and he would see that one diseased animal, that one he can't sell, that one he can't breed, that one he can't make any profit off of. And he, and we, and he would say, yeah, that one, that belongs to the Lord. Malachi 1 addresses this. And God, I think in a very, um, in a moment of real anger, in Malachi 1, God says, go offer that to your governor. See if he will accept it. You know, God in Malachi 1 basically says, hey, cut out the nonsense. You know, I'm tired of this absurdity. To steal from humans, you need to do two things. One of two things. There either has to be deception involved, right? To steal from someone, you have to fool them, or you have to oppress them. Either you steal without the person knowing, right? You use uh, duplicitous methods, or you steal by force, as in the case with robbery. But stealing from God is neither deception or oppression. Stealing from God is mockery. There's another way in which we can steal from God that Scripture speaks of, and that's through the misuse or the disuse of gifts. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, As each has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied gifts. Friends, do you know that the gifts that you have, 
the talents that you have, the background that you have, the experience and the education given by God, are given by God, so that you can edify and build up his people. Gifts were given so that you can be a servant. This is God's way of of equipping you for service for his people and his church. But these are just my observations in the past few years. But I noticed that more and more it's getting people to use their gifts that they have received for the service of others is like pulling teeth sometimes. Getting people to use the gift that they have received from God to build up his church has become a difficult, difficult task. You know what, this is all the more difficult with people who are considered professionals in their field. Those considered professionals in the field, they look upon the task that God has given to the church as something beneath their skill set, as something not worth their time. I've seen this with artists, designers, musicians, who think that the church is not artistic enough for their gifts. Medical practitioners consider serving in the mission field as something akin to residency. That's something that is beneath them, far from them. Those gifted in organizational skills and finance don't want to go near church organization and church finance because it's too messy for them. Those gifted in teaching don't want to teach because it's not up to their standards. Those gifted in prayer only pray for themselves and never in corporate settings. I've once asked an attorney, not anyone here, but I've once asked a lawyer, hey, can you help the church with this this certain thing? And when he looked upon it, he said, you know, you can pay an accountant $50 to do this. I don't have time for this. And, you know, my mouth literally dropped, and I thought to myself, well, is that what you think of the ministries of the church as as, as being something beneath you? If we do not steward our gifts for the service of the church and others, if we do not use that which we have received to edify God's people, not only have we squandered the gifts But the Bible says we have stolen from God. And so, the second question for us to ask this morning, as we've gone through a number of ways in which we steal, uh, how does the gospel remedy our impulse for stealing? If you've been with us during this series, you'll know that the Bible not only presents a list of do's and don'ts, But Scripture convicts us of our sins, it shows us our need for grace, and it gives us hope through the gospel. The Ten Commandments is a way in which God shows us how deeply sinful we are, how much we need grace. It gives us hope through the gospel, and then it spins it into a positive command. So last week, with the command, do not commit adultery, we saw that the positive command was to be intoxicated with the love of your spouse. Well, for this commandment, for the Eighth Commandment, do not steal. How does the gospel remedy our impulse for stealing? 
How does it do so? Well, it tells us in Romans 8.32 that God graciously gives us all things. Friends, do you know the reason why we steal? It boils down to two things, really. Fear or greed. Either we're afraid we're not going to have enough, and so we take from others, or we steal out of greed because we want more. You know, one of the amazing things about the gospel is when God sees our hearts, when he sees that we are afraid of not having enough, and when he sees that we are greedy, wanting more, God doesn't say, hey, you know what? Those things are wrong. He doesn't say, those feelings are bad. Instead, God, he comes and he meets them. He fulfills them. Through the gospel, the Lord says, are you afraid that you are not going to have enough? Is there this desire in you of wanting more? God says, I'll give you more than you can dream, think, or imagine. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How does the gospel remedy our impulse for stealing? It's by giving us everything. You know, I realized something this week as I was thinking about this. You know, in the gospel, God does not do away with personal property. The gospel doesn't abolish ownership. You know, we tend to think that, you know, religion and all these things, what they like to do is they like to take away personal assets. But that's not the case. The Christian message is not about God taking away, but it's about God giving everything. Through his son, God makes us co-owners of everything he has. He says, now what is mine is now yours. The most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, that sums up the the gospel. It doesn't say, for God so loved his son that he gave him the world, which is what we tend to do. But it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know, the gospel isn't this idea, this, this socialistic, this uh, communistic idea where we give everything to the state and then the state redistributes. No, it's about co-ownership. It's about God giving everything to us. And it now belongs to us. That's why Jesus, in one of his most famous sermons in Matthew 6, he sees people uh, living and working really hard for worldly treasures. And uh, Jesus doesn't say, Come on, you guys are living for treasures? That's so shallow. No. Jesus says, you're foolish. Do you know why? He says, you want treasures? I'll give you real treasures. 
You're working for things that spoil. You're working for things that rot. You're working for things that thieves and robbers will come in and steal. Jesus says, hey, it's not that treasures are bad. He's saying you're working for the wrong treasures. You want possessions? That's great. Now let me show you possessions that will actually last. You know, there's that famous or well-known saying that you never see a, a U-Haul truck pitched to a funeral car. Jesus is saying, you want treasures? I'll show you which treasures you ought to work for. And so the gospel, as it tells us that God has given us everything, there are two uh, practical implications for how this, this commandment is now understood. How does the gospel remedy our impulse for stealing? It tells us that we have been given everything, and therefore, as a result, whenever the gospel, whenever the New Testament talks about work and about stealing, it says this, now those who are transformed work diligently, and they give generously. The New Testament, whenever it addresses workers, it, it speaks of workers along a very similar sentiment. Work with all your heart. Be honest in all of your work. Don't be argumentative because we work for a greater master. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Scripture is saying, those who have received everything now work diligently and now give generously. You know, in the world, economists have tried to understand why it is that Christian communities tend to do economically better than communities that are not Christian. This is, Christians haven't you know, push this forward. Economists have tried to understand this. They've noticed this phenomenon that Christian communities tend to do economically better, they tend to work harder, and they tend to give more. And they try to understand this. They even call it the Protestant work ethic. I think first coined by Max Weber. But there's been a number of studies that have been done and still studies that are being done right now trying to understand why is it that Protestant communities work harder, and give more. There's a recent study that came out that says, there's probably it's for two reasons. The first is hope. They have hope. They don't know what it is. Economists can't really pin or ex exactly point to what this hope is, but there seems to be this hope. And number two, there's grit. Whenever hardships come their way, they're able to overcome it and not collapse. It seems that for those who understand that they have been given everything, now there's the security and this no longer this fear and this greed of wanting to take and take and take. But they understand now that they have received everything. And so they are freed from that. Let me just end with this one story that's found in Scripture in Luke 19. I think it's a great story that 
really encompasses what this is all about. It's a story about a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector during Jesus' time, and he was a dishonest tax collector, like most tax collectors during that time. He collected more than was required. He was, in a sense, a white-collar robber. Zacchaeus had no friends, but he had lots and lots of money. On top of that, Zacchaeus was short. So he was short. He had no friends, but he had enough money. Now, one day, Jesus comes into town, and Zacchaeus wants to meet him. Um, And so Zacchaeus, because he's short, he can't see Jesus. He goes up. He climbs up a sycamore fig tree. Jesus, seeing Zacchaeus, he comes over to him, and he says, Zacchaeus, today I want to go to your house. This was a really big thing, because no one went to Zacchaeus' house. He was that kid who had all the toys, but he had no friends. But Jesus says, today I want to go to your house. Would you invite me in? And so this man, who was a dishonest tax collector, who was a robber, who had no friends, and who was short, he dines with Jesus. Now we're not exactly sure what went on. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what happened. But in that interaction with Jesus, Zacchaeus realizes something. He realizes that he is rich. He is rich not because he has everything, but he's rich because he has met Jesus and because Jesus gave him everything that he desperately wanted and sought after. He realized how rich he was because Jesus gave to him something that money could not buy. And out of the riches of his heart, this is what Zacchaeus says. He stands up and he says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restored fourfold. fourfold." Now, let me just explain what's going on here. Thief or robbery Uh, during this time was considered a tort. In other words, if you stole something, you had to repay not just what you stole, but something in addition. So if you stole something small, it was considered a misdemeanor. And according to Old Testament law, you had to pay back a fifth of whatever it is that you stole. So let's say, um, uh, so let's say, you know, if you uh, stole $10, right, uh, then you would have to pay back a fifth of that. So $10 and add a fifth of whatever you stole. Now, if you stole something a little bit bigger, if you um, stole, you know, let's say like robbery or thief, if you stole by oppressing someone, there was another penalty. So you had to pay back whatever you stole plus double. Okay, you had to double whatever it is that you stole. However, there was a third penalty. And this was for those who, when they stole, they had absolutely no pity. This is when whoever stole, stole and they were ruthless about their stealing. And according to Old Testament law, whoever stole in this manner had to pay back fourfold. 
Do you know why Zacchaeus pays back fourfold here? Because in his interaction with Jesus, he understood that he was the worst kind of sinner. In his interaction with Jesus, he didn't think, he didn't calculate in his head, you know what, I'm somewhere between a fifth and a double, but let me round up to double. No, immediately when he met Jesus, he died with him, he understand, he understood, I'm the worst. What is the worst possible penalty? And he says, this is what I'm going to pay. But Zacchaeus not only says, I'm going to give back fourfold. He says, I'm going to give half of everything I own. Because not only did Zacchaeus understand that he was the worst sinner, but he also understood that he had received an abundance of grace. And therefore, out of the riches of his heart, he says, I will give half of everything I own. You see, the law can demand exact payment, but it's only through the gospel that you can bear fruits of generosity. Zacchaeus leaves as a man who has been healed, who has been touched, who has been made whole because he has met Jesus. And not only does he consider him to be the worst of the worst, but he understands that he has received everything. And out of the riches of his heart, he gives back. Friends, this is the gospel message for us today. If there is any bit of fear in you that is causing you to steal, if there is any bit of greed in you that is causing you to steal, know that God in His Son has given us all things. And may this make you secure in Him. Join me in prayer this time.